So this morning we come to Psalm 12 in our study of the Psalms. The historical context of Psalm 12 appears to be similar to the historical context of Psalm 11. Now you might recall, it was, it was a few weeks back, that in Psalm 11 we saw that those who were likely David's faint-hearted friends were saying to him, and you essentially see this in the opening three verses of Psalm 11, that he needed to flee like a bird to his mountain. They painted a picture, and I would argue, as I did for you all, that it's his faint-hearted friends and their words that are being recalled in verses 1 through 3. That they were saying to David, essentially making their case, that the wicked had their bows bent, they had their arrows upon the string, so that they might strike upon David and company at the moment that they saw fit to do so, when they thought the time was right. In verse 3 of Psalm 11, we find the words that, again, I believe, continue the words of David's faint-hearted friends. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? In other words, if the bedrock markers of a stable society are disintegrating, what can the people of God do? If villainy is called heroism, if lies become the common tongue with which people engage in discourse with one another, if evil is called good, and if good is called evil, the argument is that they were making is, what can the people of God do? And we know there are things that the people of God can do, but I would refer you back to Psalm 11 to see that. But the context here appears to be the same. Basically, they were arguing that, look, the foundations are so destroyed that the righteous should basically make a beeline for ethically greener pastures where morality is celebrated and not vilified. And that appears to be the kind of context that Psalm 12 takes place in. A kind of looking around in society and saying, it's breaking down. Human discourse is degenerating. What can the righteous do? It's a kind of picture that appears to be painted in Psalm 12. Now, I'm not saying it's an apples-to-apples comparison to what David was going through, but it shouldn't be hard for the Christian living in the United States of America to at least at some level resonate with the words of Psalm 12. J. Gresham Machen once stated, America is running on the momentum of a godly ancestry. When that momentum goes, God help America. Now, the Christian is not without recourse in such a situation, even as David wasn't. Now, re- regardless, wherever we might be on that spectrum, right? Wherever we might be, regardless, there is an ever-present help for all Christians to whom we have ever-present access. An ever-present help, and you have ever-present access to that help. Our communication with the living God is not limited by cell phone towers and satellites. It's not like, oh, I'm in a bad area. He can't hear me. No, he can hear you in any area. And it's not only that he can hear you, Christian, in any area. He's with you in any area. If you were to make your bed at the bottom of the sea, even there his hand would be with you, guiding you, leading you, holding you. You can't escape him. If you jumped on a sunbeam and you went through the universe, if you had the capability to do that, you couldn't escape his loving presence. You can't outrun the love and the presence of your God. You have ever-present access to the one who is your ever-present help. You're always with recourse. So he's not limited by way of us getting in touch with him. He's not limited by enemy opposition. He's not limited by social disintegration. We can appeal to him, even as David did, and we can receive the assurance that even he provides to David and company in this text, even if the application may be a little bit different. But it's nonetheless ultimate. 
But first, before we get into the text, let's briefly look at the superscript. The superscript doesn't provide us with details to the historical context, but it does provide us with a little information that we're kind of accustomed to at this point in studying the Psalter. This song, this psalm, was to be given to the chief musician. As I've told you before, he essentially functioned as the worship leader for the people of Israel. Um, That was his role. So he would be like the worship leader among the musicians, the Levites who functioned in that capacity. Um, The song was to be played, um, per the translation that we're studying here, on an eight-stringed harp. The Hebrew word that's used here, it's used three times in the Old Testament, and it may speak of that. However, when you look up this word, you see it in different Bible dictionaries. Uh, Multiple Bible dictionaries suggest that this word may speak of the key of the music as opposed to the type of instrument. So this may be speaking that of a of the key, and some suggest that it could have perhaps been the lowest key that could be sung by men's voices. So this was to be played either on an A-stringed instrument or to be played in a key that was a low key, and we could just surmise as to some reasons why that might be, but they would just be guesses as to why this song with the content of the song might be sung in a lower key than maybe other songs would be. And this song was a psalm of David the man who was called from being a shepherd over his father's sheep to being a shepherd over God's people, Israel. The one who was, uh, as Jesus would refer to him, the one, well, he is the man of whom Jesus would say, I am the root and the offspring of David. You've got to love that picture. Jesus came before David. Jesus came from David. Amen. Jesus always was. Jesus was born in the line of David. So that's the one who wrote this psalm. David being carried along by the ultimate author, the Holy Spirit. That brings us to verse 1. In Psalm 12, verse 1, we read the following. Help, Lord, or help, Yahweh. For the godly man ceases. For the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. Now in the Hebrew translation, as is the case in our English translation, the very first word of this psalm is help. Help. The word help begins this psalm. And I don't know about you, but I find that quite helpful. You notice what I did there? Did that on purpose. Um, How many of your prayers have started with the word help? Help. I know there have been so many times where I have just quietly uttered those words to my God. Help. Oh, Lord, help. Help. As a parent, I like to imagine um, my heavenly father, as I say, Father, help, and the love that he has for me on a level that far exceeds the great love that I have for my children. I know my heart, I mean, one of my favorite, and I got a lot of favorite moments of, you know, um, being on this earth, but one of my favorite moments in being on this earth is, are those moments when Zachary comes up to me and says, Daddy, help, and he needs help with something, maybe I need to open something. Or Thea says, Daddy, and occasionally sometimes she says, help. But if she doesn't say help, sometimes I know it's implied. You know, Daddy, you know, I don't need to say it. You, you, you know I need help with something. And I just know, like, the, the love that, that fills up in me when, when I see them say that. And I just love to think of what my father, who far exceeds, um, his love for me far exceeds the love I have for them. What does it look like to him? What are those emotions, if you will, found in the living God when he hears a son or daughter of his cry, Father, help. Help. The word help here in the Hebrew could also be rendered as save. And doubtless, that's the kind of help that David was looking for. 
I need help. I need you to save me in this situation. That's the kind of help that he was looking for. Not to be missed also, because we can easily go by this because we see this a lot, but I don't think we should miss it. Not to be missed is how David uses the covenant name of God, right? He uses the name Yahweh, right? I know it says Lord in our text. I know it's in capitals, but he's not giving, he's not saying a title. He's not saying like, you know, Lord. He's really saying Yahweh. There's a difference, and we'll talk about this even more, Lord willing, in the future message. There's a difference between addressing somebody by a title and by their name. Right? He, he's, he's saying the covenant name of God. He's not like those Athenians, um, the people in Athens in Paul's day, who prayed, to use language from Acts 17.23, to an unknown God. He is calling for help from his covenant-keeping God, the God with whom he had to do and the God that he knew. I like to think about this. Maybe this will help you. When you do start your prayers out with those words, if you say, help, you're on the road of quoting scripture already. You're doing it. So if you start your prayer and you say, help, you're quoting scripture. Psalm 12, verse 1. The Hebrew word here carries over to the English. It's help. If you say, help Lord or help Yahweh, you're quoting scripture. And if you were to say, help me, Lord, you're quoting the Septuagint. Because in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of this text, we see the personal pronoun me there. So I don't know about you, but it might change the way that you look at saying help to the Lord. It's biblical. David did it. And he said it as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. So you and I could do that as well. We can pray that prayer, and it's very um, biblical to do so. Well, David gives the reason for his cry for help in the second half of verse 1. He says, For the godly man ceases. The godly man ceases. For the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. So it was as though the faithful men, the godly men, the the covenant men, to use language from one commentator, those who were the covenant people of God, it was as though the true covenant people of God, ones who were walking in that godliness that they were supposed to, it's as though they had gone the way of the woolly mammoth. It's as though they were extinct. David's like the godly man ceases. This was the cause for David's cry for help in this context. It's like he looked around and he's like, where is everybody? Where where are all the the godly people? Where where are they? Lord, Yahweh, help. It was as though there was no one else whom he could call for for help. He was surrounded by unfaithfulness. He was surrounded by ungodliness. And he felt like, I would argue, it seems, like the prophet Elijah. Right? We remember when the prophet Elijah had said, that the children of Israel, is talking to the Lord, the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. 1 Kings 19.10, second half of that. The prophet Micah wrote in a similar manner, though if you read chapter 7, uh, there's a certain um, penitential dynamic to the context of Micah 7. Micah 7.2 reads, The faithful man has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. Every man hunts his neighbor with a net. So you can see here that the people of God know what it's like to live in a society that is disintegrating at some level. David knew it. Elijah knew it. Micah knew it. And the list could go on of people who knew that. We'll talk more a little bit later on about what Jesus knew. Because he was among a wicked and perverse generation himself. The Son of God knew what it was like. But even as Yahweh had told Elijah that he had reserved for himself 7,000 men who had not bowed the knee to Baal and have not kissed him, 
So there were others around David, but you nonetheless get the idea. The idea is clear. The society was marked by the presence of wicked ones, and it was marked by the absence of faithful ones. To use New Testament imagery and kind of carry that over, you might say something like this. When salt, right, because Christians, the people of God, are identified as salt, right, in Matthew chapter 5, when salt isn't present in a society, the process of corrosion hastens. And it's so important for the people of God to be the people of God, to let our light so shine among men. Because part of what the people of God are doing, is not the only thing the people of God are doing, but they're slowing down the corrosion of a society. They're slowing down the disintegration of a society just by being salt, by being who they are in Christ Jesus. It's been the case more than once that the people of God have felt like the godly in society have vanished and ungodliness was prevailing. And if you were to say, okay, well then what is a takeaway for me from that? I'm in verse 1. What's a takeaway for me? I think the takeaway is clear. What should God's people do when they feel that way? They should cry out to Yahweh for help. Help. On a textual note, and I'll just call your attention to this briefly because it's part of, I guess, the way God, as he had the authors of the Psalms write, and David in this particular Psalm write, there's a certain beauty um, to the structure of the Psalms that we do well to notice. You're going to see that phrase here, among the sons of men, and you're going to see that at the end of this Psalm as well. It kind of forms like a bracket in the beginning of the Psalm and at the end of the Psalm. Among the sons of men, and that designation, sons of men, appears to speak of the mortality and the frailty of man in contrast with God. Among the sons of men. But it forms a kind of bracket here at the beginning and at the end. Now we come to David's description of this disintegrating society. You see that in verse 2. They speak idly, every one with his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. Now when a text says they speak idly, it doesn't mean that they're speaking in a lazy manner. Like, you know, no one's finishing their sentences. (laughs) It's, It's not what he means. He's meaning, rather, the idea that everyone is speaking empty words. The Hebrew word that's used here speaks of emptiness, vanity. Uh, It could also speak, and I I would think most particularly it does speak to this, though it's not limited to this, speaks of false words. You see this Hebrew word used in Exodus uh, 23, verse 1, to speak of circulating a false report. Like, people of God shouldn't do that. You see this used in the rehearsal of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 20. You shall not bear false witness. So people were speaking idly. They were speaking empty words. They were speaking worthless words. Most particularly, you might say, they were speaking false words. Though it's not limited to false words. Insincere words would be another way of describing these kind of words. Whatever the nuances could be in any given situation, the society, right? That's what's pictured here. Everyone with his neighbor. So you're picturing like just a common everyday discourse that happened among people was this kind of discourse. It was empty, it was worthless, or it was deceptive, and it was insincere. That's what society was looking like at that moment. Now, we don't know the historical context. Some people say, well, maybe this was happening during the days of of Saul, when basically David was serving in the court of Saul, and he was seeking to kill, Saul was seeking to kill David, and there was a lot of just unfaithfulness within the Saul regime as people were trying to do his bidding to see David executed. Maybe this was during the days of Absalom and the rebellion of Absalom. We do not know, but we can imagine certain circumstances in which this would be the case, um, that David would say what he's saying and write what he's writing. But a mark of a decaying society, a characteristic of a 
disintegrating society is false, empty, and insincere speech. Uh, as Derek Kidner noted, human discourse is corroded when sincerity ceases. So the previous psalm, Psalm 11, in verse 3, asked, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And you might say that one of the bedrocks of a stable societal order is a decent measure. I'm not talking about a perfect measure. We live in a fallen world. But a decent measure of truthfulness and sincerity in speech. Now I want to take a moment to exhort us as Christians in light of this text. We should not share this characteristic that's found in disintegrating societies. This characteristic should not be found in us. It may comprise a decaying society, but it should not be a characteristic that is appropriately describing an assembly of the people of God. To apply this personally, let me apply it personally using second-person language. If you are lying, you need to stop. If you are living a duplicitous life, you need to repent and you need to stop. You need to see the love of God in Christ Jesus. You need to see the heinousness of sin. And you have to run from a lying tongue. God hates a lying tongue. Proverbs 6 makes that clear. To, to speak lies is to speak the language of the devil. There's a liar from the beginning. To use language from Ephesians 4.25, every Christian, every Christian must, must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his or her neighbor. Who ascends the hill of the Lord, per Psalm 15? Well, there's more descriptions than this that can be found in Psalm 15, but one of the descriptions, one of the markers of a person who ascends the hill of the Lord is the one who speaks truth in his or her heart. A lying Christian, note this. It's not mean, it's not harsh, it's just true. A lying Christian is an oxymoron. So it's important for the people of God that we be marked. I know we're not going to be marked by perfect speech. um, But we should be characterized by truthful speech. And insincere words, lying words, should not well appropriately describe us. We go on in this text and we see how their empty speech is characterized with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. So we get to see a little bit of the vanity, a little bit of the emptiness, a little bit of the deception here. Flattering lips, interestingly, could be rendered as lips or a lip of smoothnessnesses. (laughs) I'm trying. But it's smoothness pluralized. And the idea there appears to speak of the manifold nature of their smooth speech. That they just know how to flatter. They know how to say things, but they're not saying them because they really feel them. They're not saying them because they're truly appreciative. They're saying them because they're successful in their manipulation, those words. It's flattering speech. It's a lip of smoothness. We'll see more about how they use that to kind of gain power. We're going to see that pretty clearly in verse 4. So flattering speech to achieve some personal purpose. Manipulating others through the tongue. That's the kind of speech that they were marked by, but also with a double heart they spoke. As many commentators note, literally, with a heart and a heart, they spoke. Like, well, what does that mean? Well, they had one heart, but they spoke with another heart. So you didn't get to see the real heart. You get to to see the heart they show you. 
And so what is that? That's a hypocrite. That's a person who's one person on the outside, but is different on the inside, right? That's a person who says, I'm going to be this way around these people on a Sunday, and I'm going to be this way around those people on a Wednesday. And it's like, wow, we do not want to be that. That's not who you're called to be. You are not called to be that. You can't be that. And if you are that, you need to put off that and put on the new man who is renewed in the image and knowledge of his or her creator. Um, they practice doublespeak, so, so they're hypocrites. That's the kind of people that are being described here. Um, they speak as if they have one heart, when in reality they have another. And you get to the heart of this, right? What's at the root of their double speaking? Their heart. It's a duplicitous heart that leads to duplicitous speaking. Note, I want you to note this. We're not there yet, but I want you to see it, or at least I want to call your attention to it now so you'll see it when we get there. You want to mark this in your mind. You want to note verse 2 in comparison with verse 6. So when you see the way in which the speech of the unfaithful are described, and you see the way the speech of Yahweh is described, that's a contrast you want to see, so that you could better appreciate both in understanding. Now we come to verses 3 and 4. What we have here, and I won't spend long on it, um, some of the teaching that I did on Ruth, we spent an extended time of of, uh, expounding upon what a Hebrew chiasm is. So sometimes you'll see these things in narratives. You'll see it in historical narratives. And sometimes you'll see it in poetry. Uh, This this form of a chiasm. It's an A-B-B-A structure. And what I mean by that is simply this. You'll see one thing mentioned at the beginning of a certain section. And then you'll see it mentioned again at the end. And in between, you'll have the same other, another thing sandwiched in there. That's what we see in verses 3 and 4. We are going to see lips mentioned at the beginning of verse 3 and towards the end of verse 4. And we're going to see tongue mentioned in the middle of the section, in the middle of verse 3 and at the beginning of verse 4. It's usually done oftentimes for emphasis. So again, we're honing in here on the speech. It's emphasizing the depraved nature of speech. And not to get off on a tangent, so quick pastoral parenthetical note. But there's a lot to be said about how important it is for a Christian to mortify the flesh of the tongue and to control the tongue. James 3 is a great reminder of that. So if you want to read James 3, you start at James 3. Not many of you should be teachers, brethren, knowing that you'll come under the stricter judgment. So you got it there for teachers especially, because teachers, like you don't want to be putting words in God's mouth, so to speak, if they shouldn't be there. So you want to make sure you watch your words well. But for all the people of God, we are to watch our words. We are to speak words that are good for the building up of others. We are to be careful not to slander others. We are not to be duplicitous. You have an opportunity every day. Think how many words you speak in a given day. Even the most quiet among us still speaks a decent amount of words on a given day. And with every day, you have the opportunity to steward those words for the glory of God. Think about it. You're going to have interactions after this service, after this message. What will you do with those words? How will you build up another in love? I think that's exciting. So the scripture has a lot to say about our tongues, but we're going to see more about what the scripture says about the tongues of this depraved society that's characterized in Psalm 12 here in verses 3 and 4. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things, who have said, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? So David prayed not only for personal deliverance, right? Because that was kind of verse 1. Help, Lord, right? Implied, at least per the Septuagint, help me. But he not only prayed for personal deliverance, he prayed also for God's intervention in society. May Yahweh cut off all flattering lips. 
And the idea here is pretty clear. He was praying that God would cut off the speech of the wicked, their flattering lips, their deceptive lips, in one way or another. Now, when you hear that expression, cut off, you might have a few different textual examples that come to mind when you think of the Old Testament. You're like, yeah, I've, I've seen that. It's said in Genesis 17, 14. It's said in different places, cut off. Well, what, is it, what does David mean when he says here, cut off? I think uh, Alan Ross summarized the options well when he said it could mean, quote, excommunication from the community, physical death carried out by the community, or destruction by divine intervention. It's a good way to summarize the options when you hear that word cut off, especially in Old Testament contexts. Here, I think he's referring to the latter. I think he's referring to God's direct intervention, divine justice in the land being exercised by God's intervention one way or another. And that would cut off the wicked, but it would also bring deliverance to God's people. And also, per verse 5, these wicked speakers were not only speaking, they were causing much harm and likely death to many people. Harm is clearly connoted, and I think death could well be implied in the language of um, verse 5 as well. When David wrote, in the tongue that speaks proud things, he's further describing the godless character of the society. It's as though their speech was laden with bragging and boasting, right? Love does not boast. Well, these people, they did boast. The society was marked by people boasting bragging about what they were, what they did, their accomplishments. And again, by way of application for us, it's as though we see that and say, okay, I want to make sure that that's not found in me. I don't want to be like that. I want to build up others. I want to esteem others more highly than myself. I don't want to boast and seek to lift myself up. Think how weird it would be to watch somebody try and lift themselves up, like literally. It doesn't work, and it shouldn't work. We shouldn't do that. Uh, We get a little glimpse of such boasting in verse 4. Who have said with our tongue, we will prevail. So here we get to the heart of why they were doing what they were doing. They had goals and they saw their tongue as a means to the end of power attainment. With our tongues, we will prevail. We will masterfully manipulate people. We will achieve our ends. We will get them to do what we want them to do. We will get them to believe what we want them to believe. Watch how we manipulate people with our tongues and achieve our ends. That's the thinking that's reflected here. Have you ever looked back um, to a time perhaps before you knew Christ and cringed at what you used to watch on television? Amen. <laughs> I know I have. Quick pastoral aside, if you haven't looked back and cringed at what you used to watch before you came to know Christ, you may want to take some inventory of what you're watching. Like, no, I'm not, I'm not, I don't cringe. I watch the same stuff I used to watch before I knew the Lord, and it doesn't bother me. I'm going to argue, unless you were watching, like, you know, it's hard to even find an example. <laughs> like, <laughs> I can't even find an example. I should have thought of like one good example. But I'm sure there's an example out there, right? And I could think of one, but I haven't like, you know, uh, evaluated it well enough to throw it out here in the moment in a spontaneous, impromptu kind of way. But if you haven't come to that point, then I would just encourage you to just take inventory of what you're watching. But when I think back to, and obviously put off anything that's going to be dishonoring to the Lord, you don't want to be entertained by things that God hates. Um, but when I think about the things I used to watch before I, know the, before I knew the Lord, I think of this one show that I used to watch, and one of the main characters, wasn't the main character, they had like a whole bunch of different characters in the show, was this one guy who had, was just like a masterful deceiver. Now, I was an unregenerate person, I was very friendly and polite, but I used to think like, wow, this guy's good. 
Like he could just deceive everybody and he can get to happen whatever he wants to happen. He could turn those people against those people. He can escape a situation by his words. I'm like, what a masterful liar. As though it was something to be impressed by. Well, I thank God for Christ and the gospel saving me. But that's the kind of thing that we see here, that people just use their tongue so masterfully to manipulate other people. And that should not be a characteristic found among the people of God. That's the kind of people these people are, per the text. That must not be the kind of people that we are. We speak sincere words, honest words, genuine words, truthful words. We speak knowing that even as we're speaking, the God of the universe whom we love is evaluating not only our words but our hearts. So we speak truthful words, not flattery which bringeth ruin, but truthful words. If there's true encouragement to be given, praise God for that. But we are sincere in our speech. Their thinking is further reflected in the second half of verse 4. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? So there's a a general sense of, you know, an anti-authority sentiment among these people. Who is Lord over us? We chart our own course. I've got no strings on me kind of thing. That's the kind of people that these people were. Our lives are our own. Our lips are at our own disposal. I'm the captain of my own ship. I blaze my own trail. Who is Lord over me? I'm not under authority. No. I'm not under the authority of God. I'm not under the authority of anybody. I am who I am. I'll be who I want to be. Let's make sure that kind of thinking isn't found in us. I mean, for the Christian, however, the thinking should be quite the opposite. A Christian says, I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. Now, not our lips are our own. Like they're saying, no, no, no. My lips aren't even mine. They're my lips, yes, in one sense, but they really belong to the one who bought me with the blood of his son. I've been purchased with the blood of Christ, 1 Corinthians 6.19. So the Christian's thinking is the antithesis of this kind of thinking. A Christian knows per Romans chapter 8, verse 9, if any man does not have the spirit of God, he does not belong to God. Well, the implication is rather clear. If you have the Spirit of God, you know who you belong to? God. You are not your own. Your lips aren't your own. Your body's not your own. You are God's. The Christian doesn't ask, who is Lord over us? Rather, the Christian proclaims, Jesus is Lord. Over me and over all. Well, One other thing I'll just call your attention to, it's not so much of an uh, exposition of the text, it's more so just a a George observation, so take that for what it's worth. I love how, and you see this often in in the Psalms, David is describing a situation as he's writing, carried along by the Holy Spirit, of something that God already knows, right? Who knows better than God the behavior and thinking of the wicked? No one. God perfectly knows this, yet David is communicating this in his psalm. Why is he doing it? Well, there are probably many reasons. You could say for didactic purposes, doubtless. The Holy Spirit is having him write this so that it might be instructive for the people of God, even as the people of God in, the, in that generation would sing this psalm out, even for us as we study this psalm. But I also think there's a beauty here that I find um, ministering to my own heart. The therapeutic benefits that come from a relationship with the living God to whom you could provide descriptions and petitions. So when you talk to your God, you don't only have to provide descriptions, I mean petitions, you could provide descriptions. You're like, well, why am I going to tell him things he already knows? Because you're in a relationship with him. I tell a bunch of people in my life things they already know. 
I might tell them how I'm feeling one minute, I'll tell them again like 10 minutes later. You want to know how I'm feeling? <laughs> like, they already know, but why do I do that? Because there's something therapeutic about being in a relationship with people that you could just communicate and you can kind of lay cares at the feet of the living God in this beautiful relational kind of way. And again, that's not so much of an exegesis from the text. Uh, and It's not so much of an exposition. It's more so just an observation of David as he's writing, carried along by the Holy Spirit in this relationship with this amazing God that we are joined to through Christ. Now, in verse 5, we see a change of direction within the psalm. I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. In verse 5, we read, For the oppression of the poor... For the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord, or says Yahweh. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. Now all of the psalm is prophetic. David is writing carried along by the Holy Spirit, but you might say the prophetic nature of this psalm becomes immediately visible here. Because here we see a change of direction. We've been seeing David speaking to God, like offering a petition to God or asking God for help and so on. But now... We see Yahweh speaking in first-person language within the psalm. And his words are a word of assurance. He says, he declares, for, in the beginning of our text, that word for here could be understood as um, because. For or because of the oppression. Oppression. Now, we went through this extensively in a previous message, but the word here for oppression essentially means havoc or violence or devastation. So for the oppression, for the ruin, for the havoc, for the devastation, connotes, that connotes all kinds of different suffering of one kind or another. Of the poor. Well, who are the poor? Again, that's a Hebrew word that has similar connota- different connotations to it that are similar to one another. For the needy, for the afflicted, for the downtrodden, those are the poor. So for the oppression, the havoc, the ruin, the devastation of the poor, the needy, the afflicted. In this context, we'd say the people of God who are the poor and needy and afflicted. And for their sighing. The word here for sighing is essentially the word for groaning. Although it's a different word than the text I'm about to reference, it's a good reminder to us that God hears the groaning. He hears the sighs of his people. Again, it's a different word that's used in place like Hebrews, uh, Exodus 2.23 that tells us that the children of Israel groaned because of their hard bondage and their cry came up to God. In verse 24 of Exodus 2, we're told, and God heard their groaning. During the days of the judges, in Judges chapter 2, verse 18, we're told that the Lord or Yahweh was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. Amazing to think that God not only hears our prayers, but our groans. And perhaps at times that anthropomorphism of him being moved to pity applies when he hears us. So for the oppression, the ruin, the havoc, the devastation of the poor, the needy, the afflicted, the downtrodden, and for their sighing, the sighing of the needy, those who are in want or in need, Yahweh says, I will now arise. Now I will arise. It's basically a, a call to, as one commentator notes, divine action. And he, will, and he goes on and says, I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. So for David and for those with him in this context, this was likely an immediate way in which God was going to intervene. Now, even when the psalm ends, it hasn't happened yet. So you get this picture of like God arising arising from his throne, this call to divine action, that that expression that was used when the ark would go from place to place. Arise, O Lord. So you get this picture of God rising up 
And by the time the psalm ends, the wicked are likely still prowling around as we're going to see. But deliverance was on the way and likely it would come rather soon for David and company in this context. But ultimately for the people of God, there's an ultimate application that awaits. The time will come when God will rise up, as it were, for the oppression of all of his people. And when Jesus Christ returns and God judges the world through his son, it will lead to the deliverance of his people and all of his people, every single one of them being set in the safety for which they yearn. So the ultimate application, the ultimate application, you might say, is yet to come. We come to verse 6. In verse 6 we read, The words of the Lord, or Yahweh, are pure words, like silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. So here we have a beautiful contrast between the deceptive words, the flattering words of this disintegrating society in verse 2 with Yahweh's words, right? The words of Yahweh, not like the words of these people. The words of Yahweh are pure words. And it would make sense that the words of Yahweh are pure words because Yahweh is holy and completely pure. He is light in whom there is no darkness or shadow of turning. So the words that he speaks will, of course, bear the characteristics that he bears. He is holy, so his words are holy. He is pure, so his words are pure. He is light, so his words are light. And the entrance of his words, to use language from Psalm 19, they bring light. It's amazing. Well, Lord willing, we'll see it when we get there. But in Psalm 19, you see so many of the attributes of Scripture And it is beautiful to see how the attributes of Scripture are so fitting when compared with the attributes of God because you would expect the two to run parallel. God is truth, therefore His Word is truthful. God is faithful, therefore His Word is faithful. So there's a little bit of Christian bibliology. What's a Christian view of the Scriptures? God's words are pure. To use language from Psalm 119, verse 60, the entirety of your word is truth. Every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. To use language from the New Testament, Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 17, or 17, 7, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So here we have a picture. The words of Yahweh are pure words. So they are without error in them. That word in the Hebrew for pure, often used with regards to the ceremonial system in the Old Testament, like a, a pure, unblemished offering. It could use, be used in context to speak of one who is morally pure and doubtless God's word is morally, perfectly pure in every good way you could describe purity. And to describe that, to amplify that point, David wrote, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. So David is drawing from the imagery of a refiner's fire where a silversmith would put the silver, or in different metals, but we're talking about silver here, into the fire. And sometimes you didn't just put the silver in the fire, or the sword in the fire, or whatever in the fire just once. Sometimes you had to put it in more than once to make sure that the purities, the impurities, would come to the surface, the dross would rise, and you'd wipe it off, and that piece of silver would be pure. Well, here, to amplify the purity of God's word, David is saying that God's word is pure. His words are pure words. It's like silver tried in the furnace of the earth seven times. In other words, it's as though it's been already so thoroughly purged of dross. We know God's word is without error, but he's talking about the finished product here. God's word is so pure. It's like silver that's been purified seven times. You hear that number seven, and you think of the number of completeness or a number that connotes perfection. 
God's word is perfectly pure. So a little human illustration might be silver that was so refined in the fire that it came out pure of all impurities. God's word um, is perfectly pure. Never with and always without impurity. Well, I just want us to note if um, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, a little bit more of Christian bibliology. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. That word, as we've talked about before in 2 Timothy 3.16, means all scripture is God-breathed. So if all scripture is God-breathed, that means all of scripture is pure. All of scripture is holy, true, and pure. And brings us to verse 7. Verse 7 reads, You shall keep them, O Yahweh. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. Now, I won't go into extended detail uh, with regards to the possibilities of this verse, verse's interpretation, because you really have two, and you have arguments on both sides. You have some who would say, well, this is referring back to verse 6, right? So God had made a promise that he was going to deliver his people in verse 5. David then connotes the assurance that the people of God are to have, saying that the words of Yahweh are pure words, they're trustworthy words. And then you have verse 7, and some people say, Well, this is speaking about God's words. You shall keep them, O Yahweh. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. Speaking of his words. So some would argue, that's what I think is going on here. This is a text that speaks of God's preservation of his word. And you don't need this text to make that case. You could look at what Scripture says about God's Word. You could look at how Jesus quoted the Old Testament of His day with great assurance, regularly, repeatedly, and that case could be made, so on. But some people look at this and they say, I think God is talking about His Word here. Um, Others would say, well, I think this is actually a reference back to His people in verse 5, that God will preserve His people from this generation. You shall keep them... And now you've got some pronoun differences in some of the manuscripts here that you would see. Maybe you see it in your translation. So you've got that difference happening. Um, John Calvin, for instance, notes, Some give this exposition of the passage, Thou wilt keep them, namely thy words, but this does not seem to me to be suitable. David, I have no doubt, returns to speak of the poor of whom he had spoken in the, previous, in the preceding part of the psalm. With respect to his changing the number... For he says, first, thou wilt keep them, and next, and this is where you get a little bit of the difference here in the manuscripts, thou wilt preserve him. It is a thing quite common in Hebrew, and the sense is not thereby rendered ambiguous. These two sentences, therefore, thou wilt keep them, and thou wilt preserve him, signify the same thing, unless perhaps we may say that in the second, under the person of one man, the psalmist intends to point out, the small number of good men. So you got two possibilities here. Is God speaking about his preservation of his people? I think that's the greater consensus. If you were to read commentaries, um, you would basically see, I would think, that greater consensus from what I've seen. Is God speaking about preserving his word? Both are true. <laughs> you can say that much, assuredly. God's word is preserved. Every word that God wanted to have preserved for us to study within the scriptures, to come alongside of the, come along under as the people of God is preserved for us. And God will preserve his people. But I want to remind you of something that I've told you before because I think it's helpful. Because you might say, you shall preserve them from this generation forever. So does that mean that God will always protect his people 
from villainy and oppression and tyranny in every context. Because George, if I look at history, I can find plenty of examples where God's people were like lambs to the slaughter. And they weren't preserved from that generation. And I would say, they were preserved from that generation. You just have to recognize the different ways in which the Bible speaks of preservation. There's a lowercase p preservation that you might speak of. When your temporal life is preserved, David experienced that many times. And there's a capital P preservation, which Paul experienced at the end of his life. He experienced the lowercase p a whole bunch of times. You look at the book of Acts, and like he was delivered, he was preserved, he was preserved, he was preserved. Paul kept being preserved until finally he was preserved with a capital P. And what do I mean by that? It's a textual argument. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 18, the Apostle Paul, after earlier in the chapter, he said, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. He knew that his race was finished. He knew that his time was short. And he still says this. After saying very clearly that he was about to die, he says this in 2 Timothy 4, 18. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. The Lord will preserve all of his people from every wicked and perverse generation. And he will preserve them forever. And he will keep preserving them in a temporal way until that moment comes where their ultimate preservation is manifested as they are safely brought into the kingdom. Now, that brings us to verse 8. And with that, we conclude our exposition of this psalm. Ends in a rather interesting way. You probably wouldn't think it would end this way, but this is the way the psalm ends. The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. So this verse is speaking about how the wicked prowl on every side. And we're like, what does that mean? It means that they basically walk about openly, freely, proudly. You might imagine in certain societies when sin and villainy and theft and all of those things and different brutality of one kind or another is sneered upon and looked down upon and then people kind of hide their wickedness. Like, I don't want people to know I'm as wicked as I am. But then when a society has villainy and wickedness celebrated, what happens? The wicked prowl about on every side. It's open. They're very, very, very upfront about their wickedness. They're not hiding it. They're prowling about on every side. They have open reign when vileness or worthlessness or sinful moral valuation of one kind or another is exalted. Speaking of it being prized or valued, when evil is called good, that, when that happens, you have the wicked prowling on every side. It's a cause and effect kind of thing that we see here in verse 8. When vileness is exalted, when you have a society that begins to celebrate wickedness, things that God calls sin, when you have that be exalted, expect to see in society the wicked prowl around. Who are the wicked? Whoever God defines as the wicked. Those who are living in rebellion against God in one way or another. You and I know what it's like to be wicked because before we were in Christ Jesus, we were by nature children of wrath. We were wicked. We did the will of the devil who was the prince of the power of the air who would just kind of lead us as it were as we were guided by our own fleshly desires and wants and so on. So we know what it's like to be wicked. But when you have vileness exalted in the society, then you will see the wicked prowl about more and more. I think one commentator said it well, uh, Michael Wilcock, when he said that God, quote, will in fact have the last word. Because you can't get to verse 8 and forget verse (laughs) 5. Right? Because if you just read verse 8, you're like, oh, that's how it ends? No, God told you how it's going to end. But he said it in verse 5. He just didn't say it in verse 8. Verse 8 is giving the landscape 
of what David is still likely seeing. He began with help. It's, he still needs help, but he knew help was on the way. And one of the things that I think is really helpful for us to note here, if you were to ask me, I'm giving you, I'm giving you my opinion here. If you were to ask me, well, what's the connection between verse 8 and the verses that come right before it? Namely, 6 and 7, you might include verse 5 too. Um, I think part of the answer, again, this is my opinion, I think part of the answer is, at least by way of takeaway for us, is that the reality of verse 8 doesn't negate the reality of verse 6 and verse 7. The Bible's not shy about it. The Bible's painting a picture in which you can have a righteous person and the, the people of God being needy and afflicted, and you could have in a society vileness exalted, the wicked prowling around, and that does not change the fact that verse 6 is true. That God's words are pure words. So whatever you see happening in the world around you, whatever you see happening in other nations, does not change the fact that the world is true. You can have the wicked, exalt, the wicked prowling around everywhere. Doesn't change the fact that God's words are always true. Circumstances do not dictate the truthfulness of God's word. God's word is relentlessly true. Also, God will preserve his people forever. He's going to preserve them forever. But what happens if the, if, if the wicked are prowling around and vileness and, 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 and wickedness is exalted and the wicked are prowling around? Well, it doesn't change the fact that verse 7 is true. Assuming verse 7 is speaking about God's preservation of his people. God will preserve his people forever. And whether or not verse 7 is speaking of that, and many would argue that it does, that is nonetheless true because the scripture teaches it in places like John 10, Jesus keeping his people, his people being in the hands of his Father, nothing separating us from the love of God which is in Christ, Romans 8, 38 and 39, and the list could go on and on and on and on. So I want to leave you with that. That the fact of what you see in the world does not change the truthfulness of God and the preservation of his people. Verse 8, and the reality of verse 8 doesn't negate the reality of verse 6 and verse 7. And speaking of living among a wicked and perverse generation, we are to remember our Lord, who lived among a wicked and perverse generation. And he was crucified under wicked and perverse leadership. A leader who had the responsibility to do justice, but he washed his hands as though it wasn't his responsibility when it was, Pontius Pilate. He was crucified under the wicked leadership of the Jewish leadership, the religious leadership, which had multiple kangaroo courts where they gathered together false witnesses to accuse him falsely. The Gentiles and the Jews joined together in a conspiracy, if you will, to have the Son of God crucified. The people had an opportunity to see him released, and instead they said, release to us Barabbas. Jesus Christ knows what it's like to live in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. And he suffered at the hands of a wicked and perverse generation. And he went to the cross and bore the wrath of his Father so that all who believe in him would be preserved forever. If you are going to be preserved forever, you do not say like the wicked in this psalm, who is Lord over us? You say there is one Lord. There is one faith. And that one Lord is the one way to the Father. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. And what does it mean to come through Him? It means to believe that He is the Son of God. It means to believe that He died for your sins. 
and that you cannot do anything to wipe away your sin guilt. But you receive the gift of God and the offering of His Son. You believe that the Son of God rose from the grave three days later. You confess with your mouth, and by the grace of God, you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, and you will be saved. Preserved from this generation and any generation forever. Kept in the hand of your God. So if you haven't come to that place, may you hear the words of God through this psalm. And may you come to the Son of God through this psalm. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your Son who is the one who has been exalted to your right hand, the one who is Lord. Father, I know that the Scripture teaches that the day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess of those in earth, below the earth, Lord, and everywhere, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But Father, in this moment, Lord, whereas that's kind of a picture of acknowledgement and not an acknowledgement unto salvation, I pray that in this moment, Lord, there might be those, if they have not come to that place, that they will say, I know who is Lord over me. I'm not my own. I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. I believe that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. And I believe that he died for me and he bought me with his own blood. And the only way I could be preserved, not only from this generation, so to speak, but saved and delivered from the wrath of God, is by coming to the Son of God to receive the forgiveness of God. Oh, Father, if there would be those in that place who haven't come to that place, may it be, Lord, may today be the day, Lord, where they say, Jesus is Lord over me and over all. And Father, for your people, I pray that you will find us um, praying perhaps with an extra measure of gusto, words like help, knowing that even as we say those words, we're saying words that are found in the text of Scripture, that you would help us, Heavenly Father, to be marked by sincerity and truthfulness in our speech and in our dealings with one another. Father, may you protect us, Lord, not only as individuals, but as an assembly, Lord. May there not be those numbered in this assembly who could... Um, have a reproach levied against them that would rightly fall, namely the one of hypocrite. By your grace, Lord, knowing that we are imperfect and that we are um, fallen, nonetheless, Father, help us to be consistent, bearing that fruit of the Spirit. In this case, I think of namely faithfulness, Lord. Oh, may you continue to work in us and help us, conforming us to the image of Christ. May our trust in your word continue to be strengthened and augmented. Lord, your words are pure words. Thank you that you preserve your people. And for our land, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would use the body of Christ to be the salt that you've called it to be. And that, Father, you might slow the corrosion, Lord, of the land in which we live. And we hope, Lord, and we pray for the salvation of many of those that we come in contact with, that they would see your great love and mercy in Jesus Christ, your Son, the only way to forgiveness. It's in his name we pray. Amen.